The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform. You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 1st of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello there and a very warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, Fighting Resumes in Gaza. Our feeling of safety, even for a moment, is over. And our children sleep peacefully is over also. We'll have the latest as a pause in hostilities ends and ask where the new focus of the fighting will be. Also ahead, we'll look at the humanitarian efforts to help the thousands of people still trapped in Gaza. And in other news, we'll find out why Italian employers have oversubscribed a lottery to hire immigrant workers and... We learned that Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis visiting the United Kingdom had been sufficiently tactless as to mention the venerable rubble which the UK calls the Elgin Marbles and Greece calls the Parthenon Marbles. Andrew Muller will bring us his take on the last seven days. That's all coming up on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. After a seven-day pause to allow for the return of Israeli hostages and the release of Palestinian prisoners, war has returned to Gaza. A little after 7am local time, violent fighting resumed. Uh, The Middle East correspondent Lizzie Porter has been following the story and she joins me on the line now from Istanbul. A very good afternoon to you, Lizzie. Hi. So just explain to us, the ceasefire was due to end at 7am and it did so straight away, didn't it? Yes, uh, the Israelis have uh, said since then that uh, this morning dawn, uh, Hamas uh, continued to launch rockets into Israel um, and then they started again to uh, raids on um, the Gaza Strip, uh, speaking to Medical sources in Gaza today, uh, 32 Palestinians have been killed, according to their figures, um, within three hours, they said. Um, And doctors there are now reporting dozens of people uh, fleeing to any hospitals they can, the hospitals that are still remaining functioning in order to receive medical treatment. But despite the increase in aid deliveries that we saw during the seven-day pause, there is really insignificant care available for the wounded and injured. So uh, the resumption of fighting is a really con- a really significant and worrying step for uh, people in Gaza who are who just had a pause and now are um, you know going to be entering this new phase with 
really, really, really limited um, ability to access food, medical treatment and basic, basic um, living necessities. Just explain to us a little bit more in detail where Israel is targeting today, because in the uh, operation before the pause, the focus was very much on the north of Gaza, which... uh, Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, said many parts have been reduced to rubble. As a result, thousands of people fled south. Is is Israel re- retaining its targeting on the north or are they, is it moving further south as well? So a source I spoke to this morning said everywhere. He said you know, he said that the, the, the raids had started again. And I said, can you tell me where they're targeting? Uh, he said everywhere. Um, there were also reports um, in other media today of smoke rising over Rafa, which is the very most southern point of the Gaza Strip. Israel has said that it has published in Arabic language areas that people should be able to flee to, um, safe areas that it will not target. But it appears now that they are targeting um, areas across the Strip. And bear in mind that even before, when the focus was said to be on the north, there were also reports of uh, attacks in places like Khan Yunus, which is uh, in the south of the Strip. I spoke to many people here in Istanbul, Gazans, who they their families were killed in areas that were supposed to be in the south of the Strip, so supposedly safe, but were actually also targeted in um, Israeli uh, attacks. So really, Gazans are feeling like nowhere is safe. Just explain to us a little bit more about the the surprise. In fact, I want you to listen to um, some comments from Daniela Pellet, the managing editor of the Institute for War and Peace reporting here in London. She spoke to us a little bit earlier on on The the Globalist here on Monocle Radio, and I'd asked her whether this was going to be, had there ever been hope for um, the pause to last any longer? And she stressed that this pause was only ever going to be just that, namely a, a break, a pause in fighting. It has held remarkably well. Uh, Israel is now saying that Hamas violated the terms. Well, it was only going to be a temporary pause. There was never any idea that it would be um, a ceasefire. Was there any sense that this pause could last longer than than eventually it was? It would. I think there was a lot of hope among uh, Qatari and, and US and uh, Egyptian officials that it could be extended again. But uh, the Israelis said that uh, Hamas uh, uh, did not put forward uh, lists of more hostages to be released. Um, and that was one of the reasons for the breakdown, I think. One difficulty is that the hostages, while most of them are in um, Hamas's hands, I think uh, the latest figures from uh, the Israeli officials dealing with hostages is that there are 137 in Hamas's hands. There are still others who are in the hands of other uh, militia groups um, in Gaza. So they are not, they have not been, and there are seven who are completely missing, not known whether they are uh, captive or, or dead. Um, there was a hope that it could be extended further, but there is also, you know, and while a lot of people are pushing for a ceasefire completely, there is also, uh, you know, there is a, a great, uh, there are strong voices saying that we we cannot have a ceasefire until Hamas is completely wiped out. The problem with that is that how do you wipe out something that is a um, ideological, social um, force that is integrated within communities? You don't 
wipe that out, particularly um, given that a lot of um, Palestinians will now be feeling uh, extremely, um, you know, enraged by what the, the damage that Israel has has wrecked. So how do you, uh, you know, the, the next generation uh, will then be feeling, you know, the need for or the desire for revenge. Therefore, you know, getting rid of Hamas is difficult. So a ceasefire uh, at the moment is is uh, yeah not not looking like it, it's something possible um potentially you know with a lot more of the kind of uh, mediation that the Qataris the US and the Egyptians are doing potentially another humanitarian pause and that is also the UN have come out and said today we need another humanitarian pause to be able to get the care and the aid that is needed and badly needed into the strip Lizzie Porter in Istanbul, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing. As fighting resumes in Gaza, the head of the Red Cross has warned that this brings back what they described as a nightmarish situation for those trapped. Journalists from the AFP news agency have reported air attacks in the north and south of the territory. Well, let's hear now from one of the Norwegian Refugee Council's team in the Gaza Strip, Yusuf Hamash, in the city of Rafa. Israel says it intends to move its operations further south. Seven weeks of madness have been followed by seven days of a humanitarian pause and now we are back to the circle of violence again we woke up on a massive bombardment all across gaza rafa Yunis, middle area even the northern gaza city it was everywhere and it went crazy suddenly and after seven days of calm that's what we woke up on Unfortunately, our feeling of safety, even for a moment, is over. And our children sleep peacefully is over also. I don't know what's waiting for us now. Seems that we are going to the hell again. The Israeli army dropped their fleet asking people of Khan Yunus to flee again to Rafa and he considered Khan Yunus city as a comeback zone. I don't know what we can do more. What next? We use these seven days in Anasi to prepare for our response, storing the trucks doing a distribution plan and now everything collapsed now we have to start again finding ways to help people in need but i think now we need someone to help us stopping this madness that was Yusuf Hamash there. Well, the Norwegian Refugee Council's Shaina Lowe joins me now from Jerusalem. A very good afternoon to you, Shaina. Thank you. Uh, just if you could outline what you are hearing about what's happening in Gaza, please. What we're hearing from our staff is that is is that people are frightened, people are are worried about what's next to come. Already, we've seen that shelters in Gaza are overcrowded. With the announcement from the Israeli army, the directive 
calling on people from Khan Yunus to flee to Rafah. There's no space left for for people to seek shelter. Even those seeking shelter have not been guaranteed of their safety in those shelters when they've been told to flee. And so what we're hearing is that the situation continues to deteriorate. The week-long pause while it brought a respite and, and the ability for some people to relax a bit after, not relax, of course, but take a breath after seven weeks of bombardment, the the needs continue to grow because so little aid is getting in. The amount of time that we've had to be able to organize and distribute that aid has been limited. And, and the 2.3 million people in Gaza continue to suffer. We heard a little earlier from Lizzie Porter, who was saying that there had been a marked increase in aid during the, the pause in fighting. It wasn't enough. What are you able to do on the ground to get more aid in, given the fact that hostilities have resumed? Does this now mean that you are going to be hindered in getting that help in? Well, yes, of course, because once there's a reduction in aid trucks coming in, it means that those of us who have trucks waiting in the queue are are waiting even longer for our, our goods to pass through. And also, so long as there's ongoing hostilities, it makes it very difficult for us to even distribute the aid that we do have available inside of Gaza, because it simply isn't safe to access um, areas throughout Gaza. We don't know when when and where an airstrike will be. We cannot reach those in need. And and, um, even if more aid were to get in at this point, it's, it's impossible to have an effective humanitarian response so long as there are ongoing hostilities. That's why we desperately need the international community to push for a permanent, lasting, sustained ceasefire so that we can really in, in um, put in the, the appropriate effort without fear to, to respond to everyone's needs. If that pause, that permanent cease of, of hostilities is not forthcoming, I mean, we've just heard from uh, the Israeli government in the last 10 minutes saying that Hamas will now take, and I'm quoting, the mother of all thumpings, one can assume that the fighting is going to escalate quite considerably and for a sustained period of time. How do you plan, as a, you know, how do you form a strategy to get aid in in those circumstances? Well, we continue to, to work to get in aid, aid in through the Rafah crossing. We've continued and are and will continue to call for Israel to open their crossings. But again, it's very, very difficult to access those crossings um, and, and to get our goods safely into Gaza. And and one of the things that's an increasing concern is that as as aid dwindles and the the aid that made it in in the last week was nowhere near enough to to even make a dent in the tremendous needs uh of of when 80 percent of the population is is displaced and 60 percent of homes are damaged or destroyed we need a huge scaling up but but as aid and and what's available in gaza dwindles it means that people are going to get more and more desperate making it even more difficult and dangerous for us to be to be able to safely distribute assistance as people just to get more desperate and 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 societal norms really start to break down and deteriorate Shana Lowe in Jerusalem, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is just nudging 12.15 for quarter past midday. Let's have a look at the day's other news headlines now. Here's Emma Searle. 
King Charles III, Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky and Kenyan President William Ruto are among the speakers on the second day of the UN's COP28 climate summit in Dubai. On the first day of the summit, delegates agreed in principle to a fund which will compensate poorer nations for the effects of climate change. A U.S. judge has blocked a Montana state law which banned the social networking app TikTok, calling it unconstitutional. TikTok had argued that Montana's Republican-controlled legislature went completely overboard in its effort to regulate the app. And scientists studying chin-strap penguins in Antarctica have found that the birds fall asleep up to 10,000 times a day for as little as four seconds. The researchers say these so-called micro-sleeps allow the penguins to protect their nests from predators. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Emma. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson, and the problems with Italy's workforce are well documented. There are not enough workers. The population is ageing. Meanwhile, the right-wing government of Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney has pledged a future of lowered immigration. Well, the crunch point has been exemplified this week by the news that more than 600,000 applications have been made by Italian employers in this year's annual work visa lottery. The quota for workers from countries coming from outside the EU is just 136,000. So let's find out what the problem is. Amy Kasman is a Financial Times Rome correspondent. She's reported on this story and I'm delighted to say that she joins me from the Italian capital now. Very good afternoon to you, Amy. Good afternoon. So so before we examine the problems with the lottery, just explain to us how this lottery works itself. So every year, the Italian government announces a quota of how many um, visas they will grant for workers from outside the EU to come to Italy to fill seasonal jobs in agriculture, in tourism, um, as well as other jobs like non-seasonal jobs, like in the construction industry, jobs as carers, domestic workers. And um, then basically employers who want to hire people from outside the EU can prepare applications um, they want to hire them for and all their details. And then on days that are called click days, they everybody tries at once to start submitting their applications. And then the government accepts the applications on a first come first serve basis, scrutinizes them and then, you know, decides if the person is okay. And then they will grant the visas up until the number of the quota. So just explain to us that this week where we have this phenomenal number of uh, employers or making applications to to, to get a, a non-EU worker to come and help their companies. I mean, what is that saying about the way that the immigration system was working, how politics is working and indeed how the labour force is working? Well, there's a lot of factors here. First of all, Italy has an aging workforce. Um, many, many more people are retiring every year than than join the labor force. Young Italians also aren't so interested in some of these jobs that are available, like, say, picking tomatoes in the summer. So Italian industry and every kind of industry from manufacturing to services to um, agriculture have a huge need for workers. Now, what's interesting is that, in fact, the number of workers that Italy is allowing in for these kind of unskilled and semi-skilled jobs is actually increased a lot. Prior to the pandemic, Italy allowed less than 31,000 workers through this lottery system every year. Um, Now they are gradually increasing the number, but it's still not enough to meet the demands of 
of the um, employers. So, I mean, you've, you've written in the in the FT that the Prime Minister Georgia Maloney has is trying to um, sort of calm the electorate or or sort of appease her right the the right wing element, the, you know, the very right wing elements of her party about the fact that there are you know this looks like there's a growing number of immigrants, but as you have just mentioned there, that there is a need for the workforce to be to be to be fuller. So look, this is a very, very difficult issue for Georgia Maloney, who comes from a right-wing party and who campaigned and built her reputation for many years as, um, you know, really um, advocating against uh, migration, specifically illegal migration. So um, Italy has a huge issue with um, like tens of thousands of migrants coming in, um, landing on Italian shores in from crossing the Mediterranean and small and dangerous boats. Georgia Maloney was, you know, a fierce campaigner against policies that she thought wasn't doing enough to crack down on this illegal migration. Um, as an opposition activist, when before she was in government, she used to campaign and say, you know, we need a naval blockade to protect our country for these illegal um, migrants or irregular migrants and asylum seekers who are coming from all over the world, crossing the Mediterranean and landing on our beaches. Now that she's in power, it's a different story. And she has to kind of balance this kind of um, the there is a concern among her core base that, you know, there's too many migrants coming to Italy. And at the same time, the business community definitely needs more workers to fill these jobs or they're going to have very serious problems. So she is now trying to make a big distinction between uncontrolled illegal migration, which she says she's determined still to crack down on. And we've seen a series of tougher measures to try to discourage people from coming in illegally. At the same time, um, earlier this year, after a very tragic shipwreck, which saw 94... We appear to have lost you, Amy, but thank you so much anyway for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're at The Briefing. Twenty-one here in London, fourteen twenty-one in Helsinki, which is where we head now to hear about the world's largest startup event. It's called Slush, and our Helsinki correspondent Petri Botsov is there for us. A very good afternoon to you, Petri. Good afternoon, Emma, and I hope you can hear me. I'm surrounded by about ten thousand uh, people here at the festival arena. So, uh, yeah, quite a quite a festival atmosphere. I should have actually thought about what the collective noun for a startup is. <laughs> exactly. We'll have a bit of time to think about that. I mean, names notwithstanding, I'm not sure who decided to call it Slush. What exactly is it and, and what does it do? Well, I have to tell you, the name Slush comes from the time of year when this event is organized. So, you know, November, December in Finland is, especially in southern Finland, it's a time when the proper winter has not yet arrived. So we sort of, we get snow, but it melts away and hence the name uh, Slush. Mind you, winter has actually come early this year and it you know, it's beautiful white snow everywhere and, and very wintry. But yes, as you mentioned in the in the beginning, the biggest startup event um, in the world, uh, gathering of thousands, I, I think the precise number is 5,000 startups and then 3,000 investors from all over the world, a lot of them from Silicon Valley. It's quite funny, actually, you, you know, I went to one event where they, uh, Silicon Valley investors did some ice swimming and sauna, so they really put them to through the Finnish experience. But basically, I mean, this is all about connecting those people with a lot of money, um, free 
trillion euros in, in total of investment funds, connecting those people with startup entrepreneurs who have ideas. And it's all about networking and partying and, and just, um, um, you know, an, outpouring of optimism uh, at this festival. Okay, we got we gone closer with with the, I think it's going to be an optimism of startups or an investment of startups. Our um, our producer Vincent McAdimfin thinks it's a false startup. Um but but why what is it Petri about Helsinki in particular that that seems to be the place that galvanizes an event like this? Well that's exactly. I think I think there just needs to be an edge to the event because you know you have events like this of course in in the usual suspects you know you have stuff in barcelona and silicon valley and so on but that was to, ex- to be expected and when they launched slush i believe it was 2011 and they had the tagline uh nobody in their right mind would come to <laughs> to finland in november uh, or, or, or something like that so already to come here is a a bit of an adventure and i i guess that's sort of how they how they got started and then it uh pardon the pun but then it kind of snowballed there from since uh you know it's, it's a place where if you're an investor you basically you just have to have have to have to be here and and and, and then this is how the event was was born and and, and still going strong one thing that it, it isn't just about tech, isn't it? Because when you think of startups, the immediate assumption is that this is something to do with, we you know, something digital. But a startup, as we've seen for decades at Monocle, can be something in terms of retail. It could be creative. It could even be a transport system. Exactly, exactly. In fact, a lot of the people I've met here, maybe it's maybe it's because, I, you know, I'm a Monocle correspondent, so I tend to levitate towards those people. But, you know, there are urbanists here. I've met architects. I've met food entrepreneurs, fashion designers, designers. Everybody with an idea uh, wants to be here. And, and as you said, it's not all, only about tech. And when it is about tech, it's not only about tech for the sake of tech. Uh, it's, it's, it's about tech that is solving uh, society's biggest problems. So I, I, I met one company that has built um, vertical uh uh, wind uh, turbines, so basically wind turbines that you can install in. A, sorry, there's a party going on next to me. But uh, wind, wind turbines that you can basically install uh, on mountain slopes in mountainous regions, and that's just one example of of of, of uh, sort of innovative companies that are using technology to solve major issues. They're clearly going hard and not going home in in Helsinki. Um, how many of these startups and you know these, these little weddings that take place or these sort of little flirtation blind dates that take place with investors? Is there an idea or, or a, an actual figure to suggest what proportion of these liaisons, dare I say, it, actually produce fruit and long term businesses, or is this just a, a room full of very hopeful people? It's a room full of very hopeful people. Uh, and mind you, I mean, it's going to be a small percentage of all the thousands of meetings that take place here, probably tens of thousands. But if you look at many of the sort of most successful unicorn companies that have come out of Europe in recent years, a lot of them were actually born um, at Slush or at least uh, uh, deserved a major boost from investors at Slush. So it is actually making a, a a really big impact and I, I guess if it wasn't you know why would then all the startup entrepreneurs be here if they didn't if, if they didn't believe in it all angling for some cash petri Bertsov, thank you so much for joining us on monocle radio you're listening to the briefing Finally, if you've missed anything from the last seven days, fear not. Andrew Muller is here to reflect on some of the more curious news stories from the last seven days. Here's what we learned. We learned this week that it is not only the Greeks who've lost their marbles. 
Thank you. Thank you. Too, too kind. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. OK, settle down. Please be seated. Important not to peek too early. Maestro, some generic Greek music, bazookies and that. Which is to fanfare that we learned of the possible commencement of hostilities in the Anglo-Greek War of perhaps this time next week, if relations continue to degenerate at their present giddy clip. We learned that Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis, visiting the United Kingdom, had been sufficiently tactless as to mention the venerable rubble, which the UK calls the Elgin Marbles and Greece calls the Parthenon Marbles. Very good. By way of brisk catch-up, the Elgin or Parthenon marbles are a bunch of sculptures lifted from Athens by the UK's then-ambassador to the then-Ottoman Empire, Thomas Bruce, 7th Earl of Elgin, circa the early 1800s, and subsequently flogged to the British government and ever since displayed in high-end stolen goods lockup, the British Museum. We learned that as far as Prime Minister Mitsotakis is concerned, the wound continues to suppurate. This is an, a reunification argument. Where can you best appreciate what is essentially one monument? I mean, it's as if, if, if I told you that you would cut the Mona Lisa in half and you would have half of it at the Louvre and half of it at the British Museum. We learned that this analogy was not appreciated by UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who, in the service of some or other point he believed himself to be making, cancelled his scheduled meeting with Mitsotakis. <laughs> We then learned that the UK intended to ram the snub home by offering Mitsotakis instead a meeting with the Deputy Prime Minister. <gasps> and we then learned that Greece proposed to snub the snub by themselves declining to show up for that. Yes, the always grimly portentous snub snub. As a fearful but resolute British public began filling sandbags, taping up windows and stocking their basements with tin spam in anticipation of the opening broadsides from Hellenic Navy gunboats, the Prime Minister stood in Churchill's footsteps on the floor of the Commons and vowed that he too would never surrender. But when it was clear that the purpose of a meeting was not to discuss substantive issues for the future, but rather to grandstand and relitigate issues of the past, it wasn't appropriate. So we would appear to have learned that a visiting head of government raising an issue that they were absolutely always going to raise, honestly does His Majesty's government read newspapers, is grandstanding. We have not, as of this broadcast, learned what Sunak would call confecting a row to facilitate flouncing from an appointment over an entirely imaginary slight. But Greece may well have learned that if it's this easy to suck the British into a self-destructive scrap, next time they should bring a big wooden horse. Erudite classical illusions. We got them. Elsewhere, however... 
We learned that at least one former American officeholder is perhaps less well-versed in matters of history. We learned that California Congressman Kevin McCarthy, who recently made history by being whisked off the speaker's chair by his own party, had been saying things out loud in public. In every single war that America has fought, we have never asked for land afterwards. And yes, a big hello to all our Arapaho, Cheyenne, Comanche, Apache, Sioux and Nez Perce listeners. Apologies to anyone we missed. But we also learned that Congressman McCarthy seems somehow to have represented California's 20th district since 2007 and lived in the San Joaquin Valley, clue in the name, all his life without ever learning that it sits upon territory seized by the United States in the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 18. Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. It's on the website of the U.S. National Archives if you don't believe us. Entertaining, informative, and punctiliously well-sourced. Yeah. Damn straight. Maestro, the national anthem of Kyrgyzstan. We learned that Kyrgyzstan was having second thoughts about its flag. Actually, you know that chorus we did of people pretending to be aghast about whichever resignation of Will Quince it was? Let's play that, but with some put-upon producer wearily sighing the Kyrgyzstan flag over every mention of Will Quince. No. Kyrgyzstan flag. No, no. Kyrgyzstan flag. This changes Kyrgyzstan flag. What are we going to do? Surely not. We'll only ever get one use out of this, you said. You did, you said that. Anyway, we learned that a cohort of Kyrgyz parliamentarians had taken again their nation's banner, though we, for one whimsical news monologue, think it's quite charming. It's red with what looks like a blazing yellow patank bull in the middle. But we learned that the central image is in fact a stylized evocation of an upwards view of the sun through the roof of a traditional Kyrgyz yurt, which you'll agree is more charming still. Come on, agree. However, we learned that not all Kyrgyz are equally beguiled. We learned that some possibly overthinking Kyrgyz lawmakers, and stick with us here, are concerned that the sun on the flag looks more like a sunflower, and that the Kyrgyz word for sunflower, kunkarama, apologies if we've trod on the pronunciation, but there's never a native Kyrgyz speaker when you need one, is quite similar to the Kyrgyz word for dependent, which is not a self-image a self-respecting nation wishes to interpret. But we learned that there is no consensus on this and that resistance to any modification is being mobilised. We learned that as of this recording, not fewer than 249 people have signed a petition to keep the flag as it is. Yes, you might say... There's a flap. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you, Andrew. And that's all we have time for today's edition of The Briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers Lillian Fawcett and Vincent McAvinney. Our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Have a good weekend. 